this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. We are once again joined by my good friend, Samantha. Hello, Samantha. Young. <laughs> That's what I said. Uh, <laughs> Uh, for this, our third episode in our mini-series on trauma in the age of Me Too. Um, and we figured we would do an entire episode on trauma itself. What it looks like, what it feels like, which just makes sense, I think. Um, our last episode was about grooming and how that leads to abuse. So the next step in that arc of abuse is what comes after, which is often trauma. And we touched on this briefly in our episode around PTSD and CPTSD. Um, these both result from traumas, but oftentimes in our society, we hear about it in terms of soldiers and veterans, not so much about uh, in terms of abuse and sexual assault. And that is not to downplay any type of trauma. It's just to say that we don't hear about trauma in terms of what we're talking about sexual assault and abuse that often. And for the trigger warnings for this episode specifically, um, we're going to be talking about sexual assault, sexual abuse, abuse, self-harming, and suicidal ideation and trauma itself. So if any of those are triggering for you, please take care of yourself and think about yourself before you continue to listen. Take a minute. Care for yourself. (laughs) Exactly. So let's start with some definitions of the different types of trauma. The American Psychological Association, or the APA, defines trauma as, quote, the emotional response someone has to an extremely negative event. Trauma is fairly common and normal in the aftermath of a terrible event or events, but depending on the severity, it can majorly impact a person's life and may require outside help to get back to a healthy state of mind. And according to Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, trauma is an event, series of events, or sets of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Trauma has no boundaries with regard to age, gender, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, or sexual orientation. And in an article I was reading before we recorded this from The New Yorker, Juana Diaz wrote, Trauma is a time traveler, an Ouroboros that reaches back and devours everything that came before. Only fragments remain. No one can hide forever. Eventually, what used to hold back the truth doesn't work anymore. You run out of escapes, you run out of exits, you run out of gambits, you run out of luck. Eventually, the past finds you. And I feel like that is such a powerful quote. I agree. It is. It's true. You can't ignore what has happened. It has to be treated. You have to care about it because it affects your daily life. Eventually, and I can speak from experience, eventually right, it will come out. Right. Trauma can be caused by a lot of things. Aside from the combat soldiers face, there's also domestic violence rate, natural disasters, severe illness or injury, death of a loved one, neglect, In children, separation from a parent, which we're seeing as a result of Trump's family separation at the border, Uh 
witnessing an act of violence. And it is worth noting you don't have to be present at a traumatic event to experience trauma, although that is usually the case. It doesn't have to be, which brings us to secondary trauma, which is also sometimes called compassion fatigue. And secondary trauma occurs from witnessing an event, police or school shootings, 9-11 is often brought up, or someone in social work like you are, Samantha, or first responders. Yeah, um, it's actually something that really should be monitored, but oftentimes isn't. Communities have actually gotten better with making sure to offer support during major times of crisis, such as a mass shooting or traumatic events. But oftentimes, people such as myself, a social worker, or teachers, first responders, are not given that same consideration on a daily basis. The things that we see, the things that we hear, often affect our relationships, our daily progress, and even just sleep. I know I struggled with that as a DFAX worker. When I say DFAX, Department of Family and Children's Services, I often had trouble sleeping, and it was a constant thing, and we were rarely given um, any opportunity to rest because, honestly, with that type of field, you don't have time to rest. There's always a crisis. Yeah, and that's something that we need to take into consideration for jobs like that. We need to think about the the health and well-being of the people who are working in those fields, and we often don't. Um, Another thing that is common among social workers like yourself is... um, uh, or anyone who is dealing with someone who has had trauma is is this secondary thing. Right. And I, I will tell you right now, majority of people like myself who are in these types of fields, uh, we have some type of traumatic background and oftentimes don't seek out help because a part of the trauma is to ignore the signs of personal stress or in, inability to see the signs. Uh, for myself, the signs of me relapsing in a PTSD moment often begins with physical signs. I often don't recognize it until later down the road. I work in a field when I have to read crimes committed by youth, including sex offenses, and have to train and keep up to date with the issues our community faces, such as we previously talked about the CSEC community, the sexually exploited children, and and the abuse and neglect. And just a little backstory on my personal history. I was originally born in South Korea and was placed in an orphanage at a young age. Um, And yes, I mean legit orphanage with lice, visits from missionaries, all the above. Not quite as destitute as the Annie Orphan movie depiction, but not the best either. Mm-hmm. And I was subjected to abuse and neglect from both my biological family and from the orphanage, and even experienced sexual abuse when I was brought to the U.S. And being a social worker, I can be triggered often. And as I said before, um, I'm not the only one. We have a need to protect others and advocate for others because of the experiences that we have. And that's kind of how we began our career stance. Right. But that doesn't neglect the fact that we have trauma in our own selves and on our own past, and it causes a lot of issues in our daily lives. Yeah, and as I've mentioned before, I'm so thrilled I got put on the show as an intern, but the reason I got put on it was because I was the only woman. And uh, I was triggered all the time, and I didn't know what to do about it, and I... (laughs) I developed what I call the callus. So now people ask me, like, well, how do you do this job? I have I have this very extensive callus. Right. And that's a common question for me as well. How do you do the job? I couldn't do this if I were you, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. And it's true. I understand some people are not able to do it. Honestly, I kind of wish I didn't have to do it. And I kind of wish I didn't experience some of the things. Who wants to go through these things? Yeah. But at the same time... I agree with that, Callis. You have to move on. And I will say social workers have some of the most 
obscene sense of humor because we have to in order to cope with some of the things that we see. Yeah, understand. Uh, um, another type of trauma is temporary trauma or acute trauma, which is uh, what occurs after a single event, like a car accident or a hurricane. There's chronic trauma, repeated traumatic events that occur over a long period of time, like ongoing abuse or neglect. And then there is complex trauma. There are four components to complex trauma. One, it begins in childhood. That, two continues over time. And three, frequently takes place in a caregiving relationship where the caretaker is the threat or for a variety of reasons cannot support, nurture, or protect the child from the threat that results in for immediate and long-term impacts that manifest in many ways. Then there's historical trauma, which is collective, cumulative trauma experienced by a particular group like slavery or colonization, homophobia. There's racial trauma, racial harassment, and experiencing or witnessing racial violence. Mm. All of these deserve their own episodes. I want to bring in people to talk about that. Um, There's re-traumatization. This is conscious or unconscious reminder of past trauma that leads to re-experiencing the traumatic event. And we're going to talk about that more in this episode, but in the era of hashtag me too, this is everywhere. Right. And let's just remind that it may not just be one specific thing. There's several forms of trauma and you may be suffering or an individual may be suffering from several of these categories. And sometimes this makes it even more difficult to try to diagnose, but we'll get into that later on. Yes. And I did want to note there's also physical trauma, which is broken bones, severe burns, but that's not really what we're talking about today. I did want to mention it, but it's not what we're really diving into. And just to put it out there, physical trauma can lead to self-harming and violent outbursts in physical forms. So there are definitely reactive things to what we feel, and that could be the severity of abuse, physical abuse, um, which kind of can follow into repeat abuse of yourself because this is what you know is a form of a punishment or a disciplinary action. That's a long story, and again, we're not going to go into that, but it definitely has occurred. Right, and it can also be perhaps related to other forms of trauma. Maybe you are experiencing physical trauma as a result of abuse, and again, you can have more than one of these traumas. So let's look at some stats. Um, Like we said, a lot of stats around PTSD, which is as the name suggests, post-traumatic stress disorder, a big part of this, a lot of those numbers are based on veterans and people who have served in the Army. But each year, the Department of Veterans Affairs estimates 5.2 million people suffer post-traumatic stress disorder, and 78% of the population will experience PTSD. 7 to 8%. That probably sounded like 78 Seven to eight, <laughs> which, as the name implies, yeah, this is very common if you've gone through any kind of traumatic event. Women are more likely to develop PTSD than men. Women with four or more PTSD symptoms develop cardiovascular disease at 60% or higher. And that just is to reinforce that this is a physical, it impacts you physically, mentally, it has all this reach that I think we forget about. Right. And just just to put it out there again, with the Department of Veterans Affairs, they had to have their own individual department because of the vast amounts of PTSD that was happening from wars, from training even. 
that that was that severe. And honestly, because it is a group and a collective, it was easier to gather evidence to see exactly how or what they were suffering from. So yeah. that is why this exists. And we know many, many people in the military and the things that they have to go through in order to become a part of a unit that fights together is a breaking down of themselves as an individual. Yeah. So that has a whole lot of, again, this is also another <laughs> podcast, right. which, Annie, I'm glad to do. I'll be back. <laughs> I'm just saying. But yes. it is more and more information. And this is how it's kind of trickled down as we look at trauma and what trauma looks like and how that affects into the individual Common people, I guess. What is that? The common what, folks. What is that when there's, they're not? They're um, not military. Yeah. They're not military Civilians. They're civilians. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. You have going to have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so untreated trauma-related alcohol and drug abuse cost $161 billion in 2000 alone. So not only is this a mental and physical problem, but it's an economic problem if we want to look at it that way because that's the only way our country likes to take things seriously. I'm honestly, me being in the juvenile justice system, we see this as a thing. We actually have to go back and look what is the most cost-effective treatment and just detaining kids who probably have some type of mental health diagnosis because this is what we are seeing more and more of and that's now becoming more apparent that it is trauma-related, yeah. that we are understanding, oh, my goodness, this is costing us so much money for not treating it because yeah. a lot of this could be preventative. And when I say preventative, not the trauma part, but before they hit an end point where they have complete destruction, yeah, whether it's physical destruction of themselves or their community. So when you, once you start looking at the fiscal cost of it, it is better to treat and to recognize and diagnose at an early stage. Yeah, and I, um, I've mentioned before, I have a, a wonderful friend who is a traveling nurse. And actually, when I mentioned that we were doing this and um, that I had this friend that was a social worker and she was coming on the podcast with me, she, she wanted to meet you um, because she said that that has become a part of her job that she did not expect, that a lot of times people come in to, because she works in the emergency room, in the emergency room, and they have some kind of trauma or mental issue that she's not trained to deal with, but she is expected to deal with. Right. And it, I think it illustrates that this is a really big problem that we're not treating. Right. It's a health problem. That's yeah. exactly what it comes down to because whether or not you want to admit it, mental health affects your physical health, which yes. is why we have to have this conversation of, in the end, if you don't treat yourself, as you told in the quote, it does come back to haunt you. Yeah, you can't outrun it forever. And 25% of people in the United States experience trauma before the age of 16. That's one of four, 25%. In some places, the number is higher. Some places that I read, closer to 60. This is probably something that is underreported. Right. So, and, and you got to also remember um, metro areas versus suburbs. Yeah. This is what I've seen working in Georgia and my focus is within the metro area, Atlanta, Fulton County, Clayton County, versus being out in LAJ, Georgia, which is where I'm from, or where <laughs> I was raised. Get all the apples in the mountains, yeah. um, which is a little different because the level of violence that you see, the level of gang activity that you see are lower in suburban areas mm -hmm. than is in the actual city parts. 
Right. Those city parts for us city folks. <laughs> and apparently, I'm Silver Melajay because oh, y'all city folks, y'all just stay there. <laughs> that, that sounds like how my family talks about me. So I think me you're, too. you're tapping into something. I, this is my LJ coming out. And eventually, you'll hear, you'll hear so much more. Do you think that I'm a city folk, Samantha? I do. <laughs> because you also dress up in costumes that I don't understand and celebrate this uh, weeks at a time. <laughs> Costume, she means I put on clothes, but I also put on costumes. No, I'm talking about costume. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Spider-Man costume. <sighs> I just bring up the Spider-Man I'm just costume. Saying, that's, I, I, I'm just saying, that's a city folk thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That is a fair point. Um, if we look at LGBTQI folks, um, LGBTQI youth experience trauma at a higher rate than their straight counterparts, resulting from things like assault, harassment, bullying, intimate partner violence, physical and sexual abuse, and social stigma, bias, and rejection. Politics. <laughs> you can also look at the intersection of like something like the shooting in Orlando, which is traumatic on right. multiple levels. And I'll add um, with the partner, intimate partner violence, it is probably one of the least reported Mm -hmm. because you oftentimes have a confusion of, well, can you hurt each other? You're both female. You're both male. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it's oftentimes underreported, like I said before, and or not even considered partner violence and more dismissed. Yes. Um, Recently, I was researching um, consent for a different episode, and I was reading stories about women who were saying that they had been essentially assaulted by a female partner and the police show up and they're like, that's not possible. Exactly. It's kind of back to the point of, first of all, the LGBTQI community are not regarded as full citizens, which is ridiculous in itself. And then you start looking at the stereotypes in which police and a lot of other people start heavily leading on instead of seeing it for what it is, which is, yes, this is if they're partners and if they're one person is showing dominance of another in a violent manner, that is a, an abusive relationship. Yeah, and another problem that plays into that that we don't have time to delve into right now but is laws because right, right. now rape is defined as pretty much penetrative sex with a penis and a vagina, vaginal sex. Um, but you, you. This is so glossed over because our laws are not there, and because we don't. Yeah, like you said, people of the LGBTQI community are treated as second class. Um, compared to heteronormative and cisgendered folks, they are at one point six to three point nine times more likely to develop PTSD. That's very specific numbers. Yeah. And I've said a million times, not a million, but a lot on this show, that there is not enough research that is outside of our heteronormative realm. Right. And so I'm happy there is research around this, but it is new and it's ongoing. So I'm glad that it exists. I want it to continue to exist and to grow and expand. But... um. Yeah, normally I can't find any numbers around this stuff, so I'm just glad, even if they're depressing numbers, I'm glad that we're looking into it. The more you know. The more you know, indeed. We have some more of this discussion around trauma, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. (laughs) 
and we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So what does trauma look like? It can manifest in a lot of ways and look like a lot of different things depending on the person and the event. Sometimes the symptoms are unnoticeable, even to the person experiencing it and the person's friends and family. All of these that we're about to discuss take place over the short or long term, which long term could be lasting years and years and years. Um, Long-term effects are generally more severe. The sooner someone is able to get help, the better when it comes to successful treatment. Correct. And I I would say with that, you have to remember, again, trauma has been fairly new. And so, therefore, people don't even recognize it as its own entity. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we'll say, oh, she's just having an episode. It'd be dismissed fairly regularly and or, oh, I'm just sad and or, oh, I just uh, feel down today or I'm overly anxious. It is misdiagnosed in our own selves and we don't understand what is happening. So even though this has been around forever and ever, the idea of trauma-informed whatever, however, whether it's therapy, trauma-informed treatments, trauma-informed diagnosis, it is new. And when we start hearing back from families of like, oh, you start looking back and you're like, oh, okay, that's what that was. Mm-hmm. It is. It's definitely a newer way of looking at what we're going through and the severity of what it is. Yeah, and I feel like kind of related to that is this idea that you'll just get over it. Like it's a passing thing. You're sad right now, right? but you'll get over it. I feel like that's how our society has been around this for a while. And I don't want to speak for other countries, but I have traveled a lot, and I can say in those other countries, I saw a similar thing where it was like, you don't get therapy. Like, you don't admit that you have some kind of mental problem or, like, thing that you have to work through. And I'm hoping that we're moving away from that. Right. I think that's something, again, this could be a whole different episode about therapy and treatment and destigmatizing what that is and why we need it. Because as a social worker, we often talk about the fact everyone needs therapy, whether you want to admit it or not, whether it's because your mother was too clingy or whether it's because... <laughs> she wasn't clingy enough. Right. Either one of those things, it is something that you need to deal with because it does affect you. And who doesn't want to be better in their lives? Because oftentimes when you correct yourself, you're able to give more. Um, it's absolutely loving yourself. And being able to love others. I know like a St. Augustine quote is love and do as you please. Mm-hmm. And it essentially is for you too. Literally that if you love something or someone, you want the best for them. That goes for yourself. Yeah. And I've said before on this show, I have a friend in particular I'm thinking of. But um, my number one advice to her is that she needs to become okay with herself. Because she's always seeking someone, usually a man, usually a relationship, to make her happy, but she's so miserable by herself. And to me, you need to become okay with yourself, and then you'll be a whole person in a relationship. Like, you don't, you complete me, that's a lie. Like, that's, you need to complete yourself, and that person needs to complete themselves, and then you're compatible, and then you're both living your own lives, but also complementing each other. Right. This is a tangent. That's just my belief. No, I was going to say, just going back into the trauma part, this is why treatment is important. Yes. This is why being able to recognize that it's important, and this is why having a plan is important. 
It is. And we, a little while back, we had an episode all about horror movies called Why Didn't You Believe Her? But uh, this this next bit is related to that. Um, in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic event, someone might appear shaken or disoriented, and they might appear withdrawn, or they might refuse to speak. They might not remember key details, or they may remember inaccurately, or they might remember seemingly random details very vividly. And I, yeah, we talked about this a little bit in past episodes of how that can look like two police officers responding as being cold or playing into the idea that someone, typically in this case, someone who has experienced sexual assault is, quote, faking it. Um, They aren't the emotional mess that police or responders are expecting. Yeah, and to add in there, memory repression due to traumatic events are actually more common than people know. Disassociative amnesia and inability to recall autobiographical information. This could be specific to an event, selective, or overall generic in terms of identity or of life's history. There are many events that I still can't remember, but experience a lot of PTSD moments due to, say, smell, taste, or even emotion without actual link to an event. And you have to remember, memory repression and suppression could be a defensive tactic. Yes. And I think that's what we don't understand when we inaccurately remember things. It's not because we're trying to falsify information. It's because our mind is trying to protect from something that you can't handle. Yeah. And we're going to get into some of the science around that. And from personal experience, I can say, yes, I remember the weirdest things very vividly. Specifically what I was wearing. I remember what I was wearing in like every occasion. Some other things, important things, I don't know. But I remember what I was wearing. And that could have everything to do with, again, you protecting yourself and focusing on something insignificant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something like anything to take your mind off of this horrible event that's happening. One of the key hallmarks of trauma is anxiety. That's a big one. It can display in a lot of different ways, mood swings, night terrors, edginess, irritability, and inability to concentrate. Those are just some of the identifiers of anxiety. There's a, there's a lot more. Emotional responses are one of the most common ways trauma manifests. So you got anger, depression. Um, depression and trauma have very high rates of comorbidity. Depression is a long-lasting malaise or feelings of despair or sadness, lack of interest. I know a lot of you probably know what it is, but just to be clear, according to the Department of Veterans Affairs, rates of depression occur three to five times more often among those that have experienced trauma and PTSD as compared to those that haven't. Honestly, this is one of my go-to emotions after being triggered, and sometimes I don't even recognize it until after a certain amount of time. I've gotten a lot better at recognizing my own physical signs and have and have to put in action for myself to protect myself um, and to make sure that I'm okay. Yeah, and that's that's something I think is very key is learning in yourself these things that are triggering and what it does and then having a plan in place. That's something that I've had to learn and has been very helpful for me. Denial is a big thing. Feelings of intense helplessness, low self-esteem, emotional outbursts, particularly towards friends and family. This often results in pushing away those that can help you. And then guilt, blame, and survivor's guilt particularly. 
specifically talking about survivor guilt, if you look at family and friends of perpetrators, example, R. Kelly's daughter, who just recently posted a pretty intense post regarding her relationship with her father, R. Kelly. And let's go ahead and say, and make this clear, it is not the fault of the people connected to the perpetrators. And oftentimes they are victim as well. We need to be sure to remember that because they are also probably going through some type of trauma, whether or not you want to believe it. But oftentimes, this is part of the survivor guilt. Or not necessarily survivor guilt, but just guilt in general. And I will say part of the reason I am a social worker is due to my survivor's guilt. And I feel the need to advocate and help others because I was able to survive such horrible incidents that I want to make sure that other kids can do so. And I think it's really important that we advocate for those who can't for themselves. And as you know, while you were being victimized, you weren't really able to advocate for yourself because you were trying to figure out what was happening in your life at that point in time. Yeah. And that's part of the reason we're doing this. Um, (laughs) And we're going to return to survivor's guilt in a future episode because it is a big part of this whole arc that we're talking about. Um, But if we look at physical responses... There are a lot. Um, Weight loss, weight gain, headaches, stomach pain or indigestion, frequent crying, aches and pains, muscle tension. A lot of listeners have written in and said they've had to go to physical therapy for PTSD, essentially, because they're so tense. Um, A loss of sleep, paleness, lethargy, fatigue, loss of energy, inability to socialize, poor concentration, anxiety or panic attacks like racing heartbeat, inability to cope. These are things that are going to impact how you can contribute to society and how just happy and well you can be as a person. And also as a reminder, these physical signs may be what you notice before anything else. Yes. So if you do see some of these signs, you need to look back and see what may have caused this. Mm -hmm. Because exactly like the whole stiffness thing, my shoulders and my neck went out when I was at family and children's services because I had an incident that triggered me and I was losing sleep and I was having the secondary trauma and I literally could not move my neck for a good two days. I still had to work and I did, but it was probably one of the most painful experiences that I had and it was absolutely due to the trauma that I was not addressing. Yeah. And I have recently come to the conclusion that that is part of why I went to physical therapy for like three years And I got better, but it was still not, it didn't go away. And it was basically because they told me, you can't relax. Right. (laughs) Relax. And to me, I was relaxing, but I'm just tense all the time. Um, Another part of this conversation is suicidal ideation. And I want to include in here, we're going to, again, we're going to come back to this in a future episode but LGBTQI folks are three times more likely to contemplate suicide and five times more likely to attempt it when compared to heterosexual people. That is horrifying. And also, um, yeah, we're, we're going to come back to that. And again, uh, this goes hand in hand with depression and anxiety. Yes. Suicidal ideation often comes together with that. So that's something to think on when you start trying to evaluate your emotions and your mental health as well. Yes. Um, And then if we look specifically at PTSD, CPTSD, secondary PTSD, all those PTSDs, the most common response to trauma is post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, we have a whole episode, CPTSD, 
that you can see for more. But for a rundown of symptoms from the APA, it includes one, recollections of the traumatic events occur recurrently and include images, thoughts, and perceptions. In children, play may take place in which themes or aspects of the incident are expressed. Nightmares often regularly and involve images or impressions of the traumatic event. Oh my God, yes. I went through that so much. Um, Flashbacks happen or situations in which the person acts or feels as if the traumatic event were happening all over again. This may include hallucinations and disassociative events, um, including those that occur on waking or while intoxicated. And with that, we can actually talk about self-medication and why people do it often uh, because of those vivid flashbacks. Yeah, and we're going to get into that a bit, a bit more. But first, we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Like we said, it was uh, like $161 billion, I think. Um, That's a lot. People self-medicating to deal with stuff like this. Number four is pronounced psychological distress at exposure to cues, internal or external, that may be taken to symbolize or to resemble some aspect of the traumatic event. Yeah, um, as I spoke about earlier, I have moments of panic from perceived threats that aren't actually threats. One example would be while I was in an elevator in college, UGA, (laughs) I was boxed in by several men And other than being loud and obnoxious, they really weren't doing anything wrong. But I began to panic and had an anxiety attack due to being triggered from the events from my times in the orphanage with groups of men. And it took me a while to realize exactly why I had no control over my emotions or reactions to that moment. I, I didn't understand what I was going through at that time. I'm pretty, I'm a pretty strong individual. And I kind of rely on that. Mm-hmm. I'm what they call sassy for all intent purposes. I would agree. I'm sassy. <laughs> um, but when it comes to moments of being threatened or triggered, I become almost shut down and yeah. I become quiet and I don't know how to react and I go into a panic mode. And for me, panic mode is to stand still. Mm-hmm. Like the flight, fight, flight, or freeze, yeah. I freeze. Mm-hmm. oftentimes, and it's not the best reaction, but that's what I've learned, trying to be invisible. And honestly, that causes such a panic attack for me. And moments like that where I'm like, oh my gosh, there's actually nothing wrong, but I feel at any moment it could turn, and it begins to, to grow inside of me, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then blank. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something um, I I think we'll probably return to, but... For me, uh, I often get told not to brag, but I often get told I'm a very strong person. This is why I like you. <laughs> but then if if something triggers me and I feel like I am a fake, essentially, it's like a weird imposter syndrome. It is. It is a whole circular pattern where you know you have grown to this person to be strong and independent, and mm-hmm. then you feel a moment of weakness because of the traumas that have happened in your life. And then you feel like, oh my gosh, why didn't I do better? And you start yeah. kicking yourself and you start feeling guilty for not defending yourself because in your mind, you should have done A, B, C, and D. Yeah. 
it but shouldn't that's not have how impacted that to you that it, way. That's not how that works. It's not. And um, I, I've come around to that, but it, it is something that I've recognized. It's like, I shouldn't feel weak for this. PTSD can be acute, ongoing, or chronic, like complex PTSD, CPTSD. For severe, uh, short-lived symptoms, usually displaying immediately after an event, that might be acute stress disorder, or ASD. And if we're looking at kids specifically, some of the symptoms might include wetting the bed after having learned to use the toilet, forgetting how to or being unable to talk, acting out, scary event during playtime, the scary event. Yeah, I have many cases where children reenact the events on other children, whether out of confusion or sometimes out of anger. I've also had children use their own trauma as excuses to harm others. So this is more significant than you know, and I don't think people quite understand that level because I have encountered more and more child-on-child victimization. Uh And it's kind of a new phenomenon, whether you want to talk about early sexualization due to pornography or or abuse. But it has been more and more where I see during the playtimes where playing doctor, quote-unquote, has become a more extreme violation. Mm -hmm. And I, while we were researching this, (laughs) you were there, Samantha. I I was. I had a sudden memory of I, I... When I was a kid, I had this terrifying imaginary friend that tormented me, and he followed me, and, like, my parents knew his name. His name was Weingar. He smelled like vinegar. Um, My friends knew his name. He was a big part of my life until I remember the exact date he went away. Because it's related to Harry Potter, and all of my memories are related to Harry Potter. But um, I now think that it was just me trying to deal with this trauma that I was going through. And honestly, that could be the same disassociative identity disorder. Mm-hmm. And why that happens oftentimes it is goes hand-in-hand hand with severe trauma from an early age. And therefore, the protection is bring on a new personality that can handle it or protect you from this. And you can forget about these awful moments. Yeah. And it was easier to be like, oh, there's this weird ghost that's tormenting me. Yeah, yours is a ghost. I've, I've had a me- a imaginary friends, but yours was a ghost. That's that's pretty significant. And that was an old man that smelled like vinegar. Yeah, he looked like Nosferatu, if anyone wants an image in their head. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That is terrifying. That is terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) How did you sleep? I very much did it. (laughs) Very, very intense. Yes. Yes, Vingar. Okay, so going back to symptoms you can recognize in kids, another is being unusually clingy with a parent or other adult. And honestly, we could go down the rabbit hole of diagnosing children with attachment issues due to neglect and abuse and how it impacts their reaction to strangers and friends. But it's something I definitely use to evaluate children who have had many issues in the judicial system. So kids that come back getting in trouble, there are oftentimes a reason for that, which is why I I do what I do, which is to try to find treatment. But you can look and see the attachments to adulthood, to adults and to friends and why they may react to something. And this kind of also goes hand in hand what we previously talked about with gang activity um, and why when we talked about the whole grooming, why they seek others and why these are really, really important things about being clingy or not clingy enough. Yeah. And I just wanted to put in here and going off of what you said earlier about misdiagnosis, a report in The Atlantic found that childhood trauma 
may be misdiagnosed as ADHD in children and often is. Right. Any of those things have often been misdiagnosed when it could have been trauma and the way they they react to things now. As, as we know now, a child's mind doesn't get developed until their 20s. Oh, my goodness. Uh, right. Yeah. And I say child, but, you know, they're yes. obviously teenagers as well. But that's a whole other conversation about do they truly understand is this really true diagnosis? Because they do change as they grow older. Mm-hmm. The idea that ADHD, ADD can be, they can grow out of that actually has occurred, and it can, which is why mm-hmm. medication management is important. But that's a whole, again, another rabbit We're hole. We're coming up with a million podcast ideas. I'm never leaving. <laughs> I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> um, but talking about diagnosis, in order to diagnose... The National Institute of Mental Health, or the NIHM, has this criteria for PTSD. Um, At least three avoidance symptoms, and these are avoiding places, people, objects, or events. As I've said, I am a pro at this. I don't know whether to feel proud or scared, but I am amazing at this. I love staying away from people. (laughs) Uh, Not me, though. Not me, though. At least two hyperarousal symptoms, being easily startled, which I am the easiest person to startle, um, feeling tense or on edge, difficulty sleeping, and outbursts of anger. These are pretty much constant. At least one re-experiencing symptom, like flashbacks, bad dreams, or frightening thoughts. These are usually triggered by something. Um, And note about flashbacks, because a lot of you wrote in about them when we did our CPTSD episode. They're not necessarily what you've seen in the media. They can be. But smells, lighting, sounds, all kinds of things can trigger flashbacks. I have a song I live in fear of. Guaranteed I will flashback if I hear it. Luckily, it's very rare. (laughs) But one day, I bet you I'm going to hear it in public. Or are like knocking, knocking on a door. That's a big one. That, mm-hmm. mm-mm, don't do mm-hmm. it. I mean, <laughs> I, I need a sign. Never, no knocking, no knocking. I'll never <laughs> knock on your door. Thank you. Uh, oh, you can, but like I have to know you're coming. If well, it's a surprise knock, no good. Well, just like the last time I hung out with you, I just made you come out in your pajamas. So that's exactly what I'm going to do again. She did, and it was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a lot of times you can't predict what's going to set off a flashback. Like I said, Moana set me off pretty good the first time I saw it. And I can tell you, at least six listeners wrote in and said it set them off too. You know, I actually had the same experience with Meet the Robinsons. Really? Yeah. I haven't seen that. That was this movie about this kid trying to find forever parents. And it goes back to how that happened. Mm -hmm. But that also created this whole fear of rejection and all of the trauma. And I was hanging out with the kids I was nannying at the time. So that was super fun. Oh, jeez. I'm sorry. It's a good movie, though. I, I know. Moana's a good movie, too. I, I like, rushed to assert I love it. Um, it just, I wasn't expecting to get triggered by right, it. Right, right. Um, and another thing is, I used to, when I would get flashbacks, I would squeeze my upper arms. Um, sometimes I would press against my face with my the heel of my hand to try and stave off the flashback. And I would leave these bruises. I would look a horrible mess. And people thought I was taking karate or something like that, or that I was being abused by my boyfriend. And I include that because, again, he was a wonderful guy, but damn, did that annoy him. Right. <laughs> I, I experienced similar similar things, but it's more of like deep scratches and cutting my hand as well as scratching myself in my head. 
on my head until I bled. And these are usually easy signs to read. And I, I knew I had to reach out for help because of, for me, this could be the beginning of my self-harming site slash suicidal ideation. I definitely know when I start harming myself, I'm going down this route. But it definitely is one of the bigger things where you recognize, oh my gosh, I can't hold it in. So how do I outwardly um, yeah. stop this? And you know what? It could also be said to like eating disorders. It yeah. is also a physical form of um, triggering. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to include in here this side note. Um, so I would have all of these bruises on my arms and on my face. And I can't believe how many men felt comfortable enough to come up to me and say something along the lines of, I see you like rough sex. So do I. We should hook up. Or... I see you like it rough, huh? Which is beyond upsetting. It is infuriating to think that men have the right to even come up to you to say any of those things. And I feel like at this point, you have the right to punch them in the balls. <laughs> I mean, if you really want, really want to answer the question, I'm like, no, not necessarily, but if you like, like it, really I'll rough. help you out. I'll help you out. <laughs> I mean, this is such an absurd... When you told me this, I think my mouth literally opened because I was like, men, maybe I'm just really, really scary to men, which I hope so to a <laughs> certain extent. I cannot believe they would have the audacity to even ask you that. Who thinks that's a joke? Yeah. Or, or like a come on line. Right. Yes. Oh, yes, I do. Please, let's go on a date. Yeah. It, I mean, it happened a lot. It happened enough where I was like, this is a thing. Wow. <laughs> this is Ooh. where I'm like, ugh. Men. <laughs> and please know, I don't think that really, but those moments are like, why? Yeah. Yeah. Just I definitely why? was uh, pretty upset about that whole thing. As you should be, as anyone should be, as everyone should be. Unless you're in an S&M club and or you're in a relationship where you've already agreed to that, uh-uh, no. Yeah, don't come up to me about that. So all of these, another another thing about PTSD is like symptoms that interfere with activities of daily life, such as being with friends, performing important tasks, or going to work or school. I've had episodes of flashbacks due to work conferences, which had me unable to leave home for days and even weeks at a time. I finally had to make a plan for myself on how to overcome all of it, but it took years of therapy to admit how detrimental it was for me to isolate myself at these times. But that was my only recourse at that point, being alone meant I was safe from all the entities that could get me, essentially. Yeah, and having a plan, like we said, that is such a useful tool if this is something you're dealing with. If we look at memory, when it comes to repressed memories or suppressed memories or recovered memories, the science is still out. And we can talk about the Kern County sex abuse case where psychologists were able to quote-unquote recover memories, and they were false memories that convicted several, several, several people of abuse, which has now caused disruption in trying to use this within court systems because mm-hmm. it's not reliable. Right. And I'm not sure where this falls, but I have experience with a pretty weird memory thing that I think is self-defense. It's not like I forgot things necessarily, but it's like I actively did not remember them. It's a really hard feeling to describe, 
Once my mom was apologizing for something traumatic that had happened to me, and I didn't know what she was talking about at first. But then it all came back when she kind of expounded on it. And it was like I, it had been there all along, um, but I was just looking anywhere else but there. It was very surreal and dreamlike. And I actually wrote a diary entry about it when I was in high school. And here is a quote from it. I have the strangest feeling that I have forgotten something major. Not just something either, but a lot of some things. Pieces of my life are coming back to me like faded memories or dreams. And I'm so shocked to have forgotten. It literally takes my breath away. It's as if I'm in a scene in a horror movie right before everything falls into place. And you understand finally what has eluded you this whole time. These were once foundational to my everyday life. This was who I was. This was what I was made of. And I forgot as if I was brainwashed, as if I was a different person, a person whose life I stumbled on while flipping through television stations one day and left on because of passing interest but promptly put out of my brain. But it was there all along in the back of my mind, feeding on insecurity, waiting to reemerge. I know this sounds weird. It is weird. I have no idea what is going on. These memories, they're the huge kind. They're the kind that haunt you and shape you, that hang off your back like a shadow, that weigh on you until all you want to do is hide under a bed and pretend you don't exist. They're the kind that make you question what kind of person you are for forgetting them. They're the kind that make you feel like you are in a horror movie, that make you afraid of what else you have buried in your brain, lying in wait. If it will destroy you, if you remember. I've been waking up in a panic, but when I try to remember what it was that frightened me, I can't. It's there, but it's as if my mind won't let me, as if it knows it will destroy me, and I am scared. At any moment, I could be reduced to an incoherent, sobbing mess, and I don't know how to prepare for it. I don't think I can prepare for it. Dang, girl. Yeah, that was a high school diary entry. Um, and I think it's pretty, that pretty much describes my how my memory worked around a lot of the trauma I went through and the fear I had because I knew it was there. Right. And it could attack at any moment. And I didn't know how to prepare for it. I didn't know how to protect myself from it. And also, um, we're going to be doing a whole episode on therapy. But a note here, the first time I went to therapy, because it can be re-traumatizing, I was trying to describe something that I'd gone through and I couldn't do it, like literally physically couldn't do it. Uh, every time I tried, I couldn't find the words and I could visualize the event until I tried to describe it and it like magically disappeared. Oh, I actually have similar experiences of feeling foggy. As in fact, we know that it's hard to correctly remember past events without evidence that comes along with it. And for me, I have no one to show me pictures of or tell me stories of my childhood for the first seven years of my life. I will continue to tell people how they were talk, will talk about their childhood. And I will say, you know, at five years old, your mother, your father, your guardian probably had some pictures of your first days of school, whether your first Christmas, all of those things. And I don't have any records of me before seven years old because I was placed in an orphanage. And a majority of those things didn't come with me. And honestly, it probably is a good thing 
But for me, what I have are vague memories and dreams that sometimes seem to haunt me, as in fact, my memories seem to be severely damaged to the point I can't even speak my native language, even though it's the only language I could speak until I was seven. I mean, I literally could not communicate with my family when I was adopted for the first six months of our lives. It literally was just crying and pointing at things which I can't quite remember all of that, but I know it had to be real fun for everyone. And now I have a bit of a Southern accent, so you're welcome to that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, even though all of these things happened, I decided, you know what? I want to conquer this. I want to take on my ethnicity. I want to know more about my culture, who I was. And I took a Korean course for three semesters in college. And I was the second worst worst (laughs) in that class. And that was at the point in time that when I learned A, the phrase fresh off the boat, or a fob, Mm -hmm. and B, being whitewashed, which is what I am. Essentially, the idea that I am a Korean that has been inundated in the white American U.S. culture, Mm -hmm. and therefore, I am no longer regarded as a true Korean, which that's a whole issue in itself. But for me, none of these actually help. And everything is kind of a fog and to the point that I cannot learn, even with me doing Duolingo, any of the programs, I cannot remember Korean to a detriment. And I even asked a psychologist, what do you think this is? And they could not really explain to me other than you you have a defense mechanism right now that's not allowing you to remember because of the trauma that you endured. Yeah. And that's how powerful it is. And in terms of recalling things inaccurately, there is research supporting that. Um, and it has to do with your brain focusing on certain things and not others in a survival situation. The part of our brain involved with focusing on things can essentially get shut down by stress chemicals during a stressful or traumatic event. And what that means is you're less able to focus. You're less able to make sense of things. And therefore, you're less able to recall things in a way that makes sense. The amygdala, responsible for the fear response, steps in and takes the reins when it comes to where your attention goes. And this might mean your brain focuses on a small but terrifying detail or a minor detail in order to distract and detach. Um, Like I said, I can specifically remember what I was wearing very vividly um, and a lot of my traumatic memories. Um, Specific unconnected images, sensations, probably out of sequence, which is not good when you're in court testifying. Right. And I've already, we just discussed the fact that I have such foggy memories and inability to actually learn my own native language due to some of the trauma. Um, I also struggle with the past traumas in in dreams. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was really, really young, and they actually still stick with me, specific dreams of me being left, locked out of the home over over 24 hours and being attacked by a dog, um, having a memory of being abandoned in the woods, which I'm pretty sure that was not true because I was in a basket. So I don't think that one was true. But I had to differentiate with, is this real? Isn't this real? What happened? I had a... an incident in which I was stabbed in the knee by another orphan girl who went through a manic moment, which caused me a trauma as well. I had many things that happened that I cannot actually differentiate, mm-hmm. and it's hard to organize. So it's just kind of a big blur, yeah. and trying to figure those out has been fairly traumatic in itself. And I will say for me, 
trying to get past it or trying to bring it back up. I have tried different therapies and trying to get connected back to those because I think part of my frustration is not knowing, Yeah, which I know for a lot of victims, that's kind of the same thing for them. I think um, I'm, get, I'm constantly haunted by emotions. Mm-hmm. So I know you and I talked about the fact that I get triggered by emotions, whether it's if I feel like someone's disapproving of me, it triggers me into a spiral in which I cannot communicate with people. I kind of go into a fetal position and have to go home because that realization of being disapproved, not wanted, rejected, has been a huge fear factor for me. It has been something that actually will stop me from doing something better, doing something new or trying something new. And as in fact, when we talk about the fact this hurts testimony. Yeah. Um, I had an incident when I actually came into the U.S. where I was victimized at a public pool. And I actually got uh, contacted by a woman recently from my same town who had heard my story somehow and reached out to me and said that similar thing had happened to her. And this man was supposedly about to coach a swim team for kids. And honestly, I had to send back to her, "I, I can't really help you, A, because... I don't remember the man's name. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the time frame when it happened. And I can't exactly tell you um, all of the events that had happened inside of that. Mm-hmm. So me who has been have been in the court systems and have actually gone through watching a full case for child abuse, sex abuse, whatever, I knew that I would be more of a detriment to the case because of my lack of memory and mm-hmm. inability to say actual names than anything else that I had to say I can't. I can't help you, which is unfortunate yeah. because the survivor in me is like, oh, my gosh, we have to stop this. We have to stop this. Yeah. But I know legally and rationally I'm not a help, Yeah, which is really frustrating in itself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And in this age of Me Too and hearing about this all the time, it's hard to escape. Right. It's hard to escape. So this brings us to the end of part one of our deep dive on drama. Sometimes when you make an outline, you're not sure how long the episode is going to be, but it quickly became apparent that this was going to be a two-parter. So look out next week for the second part where we're going to talk about re-traumatization and resources and trauma-informed responses. And in the meantime, if you would like to email us, if you want any of those resources, please reach out. You can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Thanks as always to our producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. 